Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. You know, there was once a day when, you know, a man wanted to get a hair, I would get a haircut, get a shave. He would go to a barber and he would sit in a barber chair and the barber would lather his face up. Well, there was this barber who had just become a believer in Christ. And he was, he was so excited about it. And he was so excited about the fact that he, he knew Jesus and he was so excited that he was going to have an opportunity now to share it with all of his clients. So one of his regular clients comes in, sits him in the chair, puts the towel around him, puts lather on his face, and turns around. And at this time, they didn't use razors like we know of. They used what's called a straight razor, which was just a razor on the end of a piece of metal that he could use. And he would give him a close shave, really close shave. It's a great shave. I've had one. It's great. So he's sitting there at the counter, and he's, he's sharpening it. And he turns around, and he says to his client, he says, so are you ready to meet your maker? Needless to say, the client jumped out of the chair and ran out of the barber shop. This barber, he was, he was excited, not realizing what he was doing, but he was excited because he, 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 he was so excited about the fact that he knew Jesus and he was just motivated, and we're going to talk about that today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Isaiah 59. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. You know, we've been looking in Ephesians 6. We've been talking about the armor of God and how the armor of God, if we stand firm in it, it'll help us stand against the schemes of the enemy, the arrows he throws at us, the darts he throws at us. It'll help us to actually battle ourselves inside the, the, um, our, our fleshly nature that longs to sin. It'll help us battle that and, our, and help us in our spiritual walk. We, we've looked at the belt of truth. We've looked at the breastplate of righteousness. We've looked at the, the shield of faith. We've looked at the helmet of salvation last week. I actually had a sword here, which was cool, but that's the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But there's another piece of armor. And we we read this when we went back to Isaiah a few weeks ago. And I believe Paul doesn't mention this piece of armor, but it was spoken of by Isaiah. And and, and I think that Isaiah is probably where Paul gets this idea of the armor of God, and then the Holy Spirit leads him to write. So if, you, if we go back to Isaiah 59, 17, this is what it says. And Isaiah is talking about how there's nobody who's doing things right, things are going bad, and, and he comes, he's talking about the Messiah. He says, he, who is the Messiah, put on righteousness as a breastplate. Well, that's, that's exactly what Paul says, the breastplate of righteousness. And the helmet of salvation on his head. Well, that's exactly what Paul says. And then Isaiah kind of shrinks this down a little bit. He says, he put on garments of vengeance. Which, if you think about it, the shield and the sword and the belt and the shoes for the gospel of peace are are things used by God to fulfill his mission, his vengeance. And then he says this one part. He says, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, let's talk about cloaks a little bit. The ancient armies would have a cloak. It's like a cape, like a heavy cape. Not too many people wear these today. 
But it was very useful. There was a lot of uses that it was for. And, and it makes it very relevant for what we're talking about with the armor of God. Zeal as a cloak is an invaluable tool for our constant war against Satan and against our own fleshly nature. See, the Roman cloak, what they would do is they would use it to wrap around themselves. It was long, it was big enough, they could wrap it around their armor, and they would use it to keep themselves warm. And you're thinking, warm? I mean, when we think of, we think of the Romans, we always think about them being in the Middle East. Well, it's a desert, right? No, it snows in Jerusalem, at least at least twice a year it snows, and at least every three to four years they get a lot of snow. But you also got to remember that the Romans would also go up into northern Europe. So they had to have a cloak, and the cloak would keep them warm. They could wrap it around themselves. They would take the cloak, and they would cover it with oil, different kinds of vegetable oil, olive oil, and so forth. And what that would do, that would waterproof it. So when it was raining, they'd be able to cover themselves. And they would be waterproof. They wouldn't get soaked. But probably one of the most important things they used it for is they used it for a bed. They would either wad it up or they'd put it on the ground and they'd sleep on it. So they'd get a good night's sleep. I don't know about you guys. If I don't get a good night's sleep, I'm not worth anything. And if it's for more than one night, it's terrible. But think about a marching army. And how it's important that they get the rest because they're marching all day. And when they get back, they get to where they're, they're going to be camping, they are out. And they need a good restful sleep because if they don't get a good sleep, they get demotivated. So we think about if that's what it was for, that cloak that's wrapped around us, and, it, and we get good sleep and it motivates, it protects us from the cold and from the rain. It, 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 the cloak of zeal becomes so important to our armor in our battle against Satan and our battle against our fleshly nature. In fact, I would argue that without the cloak, the army would not have been effective. Would not have been effective as they should have been. But Isaiah calls us this zeal as a cloak. So what is zeal? Zeal is, is not a word we hear very often. We don't, you know, don't, you know don't, people don't put on the resume, yes, I'm very zealous about this. It's not a word that we use. But zeal and, and it be, wrapping around us is this great image. It's defined as an eagerness. It's, a, it's an enthusiasm to accomplish something. It's, it's, I'm so passionate about it that you can tell. So how does this tie into this? Well, we need to look at what is God, you know, we, we need to be doing what God wants, what God's doing. Where is God going? If we go to Zechariah 8.2, this is what it says. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion. With great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. So now we know, we know that God himself is not only zealous for Zion, but that means he's zealous for his people. You know that God is zealous for you? You know God is excited for you? God is excited for all those children in, in Malawi? He's zealous for them. So we need to be zealous for them. He's zealous for the plan he has laid out 
we know we've been talking through this. What is God's plan when we, when, in Ephesians? What is God's plan? God's plan is to draw everything under Christ. And he's zealous for that. He's excited about it. He's passionate about it. So guess what? We need to be zealous for it. We need to be passionate about it. And part of that is going out and bringing people to him. Leading people to Christ. But it's also about living our lives. You can think of zeal as the fuel that drives us. It's, it's the passion. It's, it drives our purpose. And I want to share a few examples in Scripture of people who were very zealous. First one is one of, is one of my favorite ones. It's, and it's the story of Phineas, Phineas. And it comes from the book of Numbers. The Israelites have been wandering in the desert. And there were certain people that God says, do not have anything to do with these people. Watch out for them. One was the Moabites. And the others were the Midianites. But unfortunately, God's people don't listen. And they are now sacrificing to the gods of Moab. And the Moabites and the Midianites are getting together. And they're conspiring against the Israelites to lead them away from God. So what does God do? God's going to punish them. And he does. He sends a plague. And Moses and Aaron and Aaron's, and Aaron's son Phineas are standing in front of the tent of meeting and they are wailing. They are crying out to God to stop this. And the people are behind them, the ones who hadn't died of the plague yet. They are back behind them and they are crying out to God. So God says, okay, I want you to bring the head of every tribe, the head of every chief, I want every one of them to come and you're going to hang them in front of the people. This is your punishment. If you do this, I'll relent. That's how zealous God is for his righteousness. So they're standing there, and as Moses and, and Aaron and Phineas are standing there, we come to verse uh, chapter 25, verse 6 through 9, and this is what happens. It says, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. That's a nice way of saying it. They were prostituting themselves with the Midianite women. And so right in front of the assembly, one of the men grabs a Midianite woman and takes her to his tent. In the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation. He took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. He goes in, finds sees what they're doing, and he takes a spear and spears them both to the ground. The man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died from the plague were 24,000. 24,000 Israelites had died from the plague, and what stopped it was one young man who was so zealous for the, for, the, for the laws of God, so zealous for the righteousness of God, he took a spear and he speared a man and woman who were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. To the ground. That's zealous. Seems kind of harsh, really, doesn't it? What a harsh response. What would, what would, what would the world tell them today? Oh, that's just judgmental. 
You're right, as it should be. Finish is praised by God for what he did. Now think about that. I think, I don't know about you, I just thought this thought, thought popped in my head while I was writing this sermon. You know, I think sin would be a lot less common if we knew somebody was standing behind us with a spear. Less chance of us doing it. But God's standing right behind us and he's seeing it. And we need to be zealous for his righteousness. We need to wrap ourselves in the cloak of zealousness. See, when God gives a command, we are to follow it. Phineas is remarkable because most of what was happening, most of the people saw it, that were saw that, what did they do? They stood around and did nothing. There should have been more than one man going in that tent and taking care of this problem. One man did it. That's the way it is today in our society. Our society will stand by and watch injustice happen. And that's what the people did. It took one man, though, to stop it. Phineas was remarkable. He took action on the Word of God. Another good example is in the New Testament. This is in Colossians. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you. So this man was from Colossae. He's a servant of Christ. Greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Do you, do you struggle on behalf of people in your prayers? Do you ever just, you know, your heart is just so torn up that you just, you struggle in prayer. And I don't mean, it doesn't mean that he was struggling to pray. It was that he was actually struggling while he is praying for the church at Colossae. He loves them. He is so zealous for these people and for them to know God and know his righteousness that he is literally probably weeping and moaning in his prayers for these people. Because Paul says, why is he praying that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God? And Paul says, I'm a witness here. I'll tell you what he's doing. He says, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, we don't know anything else about Epaphras. Nothing else about him. But in this letter, Paul, we know he was a member of the New Testament church, and we know that he had zeal. He had passion for the people that he knew back home. He cared deeply for his fellow laborers in Christ, and he led much time of dedicated prayer to them and for them, lifting them up to God that they would be mature and that they would grow. Oh, that we would be that zealous in our prayers. That, that's what I hope for myself. I hope that when I'm praying for people, that I'm just I'm, I'm pouring my everything into them. But obviously, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. He enters the temple area. This is his father's house. And what are they doing? There's a couple things that are going on. If you, if you know anything about the temple, the temple was, a, was an easy way to pass through. You could pass through one door and go all the way through it, and you'd be in Jerusalem proper. It was an easy pass through. That was a big problem to begin with. You'd have to, you'd have to go through all the ceremony to get into the temple court, the court of the Gentiles. But you could do it. Then they were setting up tables all around and they were selling because you, you had to come from a long distance. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't bring your animals so you could buy sacrifices. 
And then you couldn't give Roman money to the treasury, to the temple treasury. You had to give actually Jewish temple money. So there was an exchange rate. Well, this was all controlled by the priest. So the people were paying for their tables. They were charging people exorbitant prices. They were also charging people exorbitant exchange rates. And the priests were personally profiting from it. And Jesus knows this. And he gets a little mad. Righteous anger. And here's what he does in John chapter 2, 15 through 17. He says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeon, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And, and actually, in, in other part, other gospels, it says, you know, my, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, and you've made it into a den of robbers. A house of prayer for who? The nations. And you've made it a, dead, a den of robbers. And it says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, zeal needs to consume us when it comes to God. And in his righteousness, in our righteousness that he puts on us, we need to be consumed by it. We need to be consumed for the things that God's consumed about. We need to be consumed for the orphans. We need to be consumed for the widows. We need to be consumed for righteousness. We need to be consumed about those we know who are dying without Christ and going to hell. We need to be pouring our hearts out in prayer for them. But I wonder today if we're even doing that. And I'll be honest with you. I don't think today in our society that zeal is a problem. I think there's plenty of zeal in the world today. It's just misdirected. It's not directed to the right place. I mean, can is that possible? Is it possible to be zealous for something that's wrong? Well, most definitely. We get this single-minded desire that's characterized by enthusiasm and devotion for the wrong things. There are people out there who have a zeal for sports. They eat, breathe, drink, live, sleep, sports. And there's nothing wrong with sports. Believe me, most of these things that we can be zealous for, there's not a thing wrong with them in and of themselves. The question is, what are we more zealous for? If I'm willing to go to a stadium... And sit there with 10,000 people and cheer on a football team. Am I not willing to go and sit in a church or to worship with other people and sing out my heart to God? Which one is it? I'm willing to do this, but I'm not willing to do that. We have zeal for our jobs. We should. We should be. Our jobs should be important. We should be passionate about our jobs because then we enjoy it. And, we do, and if we do the work for the Lord, it's even better. But the problem is sometimes we put our jobs above God. We're even zealous for our families. It's a good thing. I need to be passionate about my family. But when my family comes before my God, I have a problem. Today, social media. We're zealous for social media. You know, I've... Stopped Facebook. I only use Facebook for church stuff, meaning that I post my sermons, that's it. I don't have it on my phone. I don't have it on my pad. I'm done. 
Because I found out that it was starting to take over. I was thinking about it. Oh, I need to post that. Oh, I need to post that. No, I don't. I don't need to post anything. Well, you're just, people just aren't following you. I don't care. I don't care. I post my sermons. That's it. Sometimes we have zeal for our possessions. I want that, I want that new boat, that new car, that new house. Not bad things. But what are we truly should we be zealous for? Our zeal for the Lord is lacking. Our God is a jealous God and will not tolerate us putting anything else before Him. You know, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you. He will provide for you, but you must seek Him first. Be zealous for Him. In 2 Samuel, Saul was so zealous that he killed the Gibeonites when he wasn't supposed to. He thought that'd be a good thing. It wasn't. In Romans 10:2, Paul describes unbelieving Jews. He says, "For I bear them witness that they ha- that I that they have zeal for God." These Jews had zeal for God. You're thinking, "Oh, that's a great thing. That's a good thing." The problem was it was without knowledge. They knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They were zealous for it, but they missed Jesus. They didn't have the knowledge. They rejected Christ because of their lack of knowledge. Paul himself had misdirected zeal. Paul was, you know, he was persecuting the church with zeal. He thought he was doing the right thing. He approved of Stephen's murder in Acts 8.1. He persecuted the church. He utterly attempted to destroy it all the time, thinking, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing God's work. Zeal can be good or bad, depending on your objective. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. Our zeal is also to be consistent and sincere. It's not to be a show. It's not to put on a show. It's not to show people that, oh, look how zealous I am. It should always point to God. So this kind of begs the question, what are you zealous for? I would warn us that if we're anything, any, if we're zealous for anything more than we are of the gospel and of God, of serving Christ and telling others about the life-saving power of the cross, we are committing idolatry. And we must repent and become zealous for God. Romans 12:11 tells us that God wants us to be fervent in spirit. And fervent means to be boiling with heat. I mean, I ask myself sometimes, man, when was the last time you were on fire for God? I mean, it should be, we should be boiling over. We're to be, Titus, Titus 2.14 says we should be zealous for good works. But just as the soldier without his cloak quickly finds himself demotivated... And unable to operate at his peak, we as soldiers of Christ, if we don't find ourselves, sometimes we find ourselves unable to operate because we've lost our zeal. You know, I don't know about you, but when I first became a believer, I was 12 years old, and man, I was on fire. It was exciting. Jesus had changed my life. I now I realized that I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. And I wanted to tell everybody, but you know what? After a little bit, what happens? 
I'm not as zealous as I was before. I, I, I lost it. I need to get it back. So how do we do this? How do we get refueled in our zeal? I want you to imagine uh, you're a, an IndyCar driver, and you're sitting there in the pit, and they have just poured the gasoline into your tank. And you sit there, and you let it idle and idle and idle until you run out of gas. Just eating up that hard-earned fuel, getting absolutely nowhere. It's ridiculous. Why would we do that? I don't know about you, but I'd hit the pedal. I'd get out there on the track. Wouldn't go that fast. (laughs) Not as fast as they do, but I would go as fast as I felt I could. See, we're no different when we fill up with the spiritual fulfillment of Christ. When we come to church and and, and we sing and we hear sermon and we're we're excited about it, and then we just walk out the door and it's like, oh, okay, back, back to life. Zeal is that fuel. It gives us strength to live God's way. So how do we do this? How do we increase the zeal? And I don't normally like to go through lists, but I think this is important that we understand we need to regain our zeal, not just as, not just as individuals. I think as a church, we need to regain our zeal. So first is we need to evaluate our relationship with God. So what are you passionate about? Many times we're passionate about insignificant things or we're passionate about sinful pursuits. So you think about, how will people remember me? Will people know that I'm a believer in Christ? You know, then i got to think, how is my relationship with God? Am, am, am I walking where I should? Is my family, my coworkers, and my friends, do they know that I'm passionate about Christ? Now, yes, I know I have a little bit of an advantage, or a disadvantage as the case may be, because people say, well, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh. So they either expect me to be zealous for God, or they expect me to be a hypocrite. Like I say, good and bad. But do people around you know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ? If they don't, I have to question if you are really zealous for God. Because it should overflow. Well, I don't want to offend them. Really? Jesus, sooner or later, is going to offend them. It's going to happen. He's a stone the builders rejected, and they stumble over it. I don't know about you, but uh, we were, had a garage sale and I was moving these bricks around. I catch that stupid brick all the time with my foot. The brick's not stupid. I am. Because I'm not lifting my foot. Jesus is there. And, and, and am I, if, if, if I'm going to truly, if he is who he says he is, and he is, I'm going to stumble over him if I'm not careful. I, need, I can't reject him. Would people say that you are passionate about Christ. So where is your passion for God right now? And these are this is how you need to evaluate. On a scale from, and I don't like scales, but this is the only way, best way to do it. On a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being cold and 10 being hot, where do you rate? Well, how is your relationship with God? And you're like, well, how do I know how my relationship is? Well, how's your relationship with your with your wife? How's your relationship with your family? How does that compare? Am I Am I, don't get this wrong, if my relationship is a 10 with my wife and I'm hot, it's because we're communicating. We're spending time together. I'm promoting, I'm, I'm lifting her up 
I'm protecting her. I'm defending her. Do I do the same with God? Am I spending time with him? Am I talking to him? Is he talking to me? Well, how does God talk to you? He talks to you in his word. So you got to be in your word. Does God talk to us verbally? Yeah, I think he does give us some nudges. And there are a few times you may hear his voice very seldom. It's not a normal thing. It's not an everyday occurrence. But God does speak to us. But he mostly speaks to us through his word. Are you satisfied with just an okay... Are you just satisfied with an okay relationship with God? I'm not satisfied with just an okay relationship with my wife or with my kids or with the rest of my family or with the church. How should I be, why should I be satisfied with an okay relationship with God? Well, at least I'm saved. Are you? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. You better be working. You better know you're saved. What needs to change for Jesus to be your greatest passion? When was your zeal for God the greatest? This, and this is from Revelation 2.5. It says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. He's talking to the church. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. When was the last time you were on fire for God? You better find that again. How do you keep your spiritual temperature high with all the cooling influences in the world? Because I'm going to be honest with you, lukewarm faith will not do. And I think there's a, there is a, a, uh, a pandemic of lukewarm faith in the world today. Revelation 3.16, so because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So how is your relationship with God? Evaluate it. Stand under the cross. C.S. Lewis once said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true... It's of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. How important is your Christianity to you in your life? Stand under the cross. Be serious about the things that are serious. The cross is serious, and we're, we're not to be nonchalant about it. I think familiarity breeds contempt, right? The more familiar we are with it, the more we just ignore it. Don't get so familiar with the cross that you just ignore it. It's important. Don't get so familiar with prayer that you ignore it. Don't get so familiar with the gospel, with the scripture that you ignore it. And I mean, yes, both the Old and the New Testament. Reread each account of the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Slowly and meaningfully. Stand under the cross. Third thing to do, keep the judgment in mind. I, I challenge you, read Matthew 25, 31 through 33. It talks about God's judgment. He is going to come and he's going to judge. And judgment is not a popular topic today. I know that. But looking toward the coming judgment will sober you up. If we think that God's coming to judge, then why would we not be wanting to reach every single child in Africa? With the gospel. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Keep the judgment in mind. 
examine your motives. As followers of Christ, we need to pay attention to our purpose and our passion. Purpose is what we do. That's our head, our education, plus the right thinking about God's commands. Passion is what we do with our heart. We need to be pointing in the right direction. Because understand, passion without purpose, which is knowledge, is foolishness, and no one benefits. But without passion, we're like a river without water. But without purpose, we're like a river without banks. We need both. Philippians 1.9 says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love for God, love for God's word, love for the lost should always be our motives. When you examine our worship, never let your worship devolve into something that's just going through the motions. But pastor, I don't like to sing. Then don't sing. I'm not telling you you have to sing. What I'm telling you is your heart better be in the right place. John 4, 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. It does not say that the true worshipers are those who worship with loud voices and beautiful singing, does it? It says worship with spirit and truth. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, then let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. We need to be worshiping at all times. Because understand, it's going to get bad. And worship helps. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. through 5. Understand this. The last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. That is what we are today. We need to examine our worship. Next, we need to get rid of all the pet sin in our lives. We cannot feel enthusiasm and guilt at the same time. Guilt robs our passions. Remove those habits that are getting between you and God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see what it says? Test yourself. Test yourself. Because Jesus will forgive us if we confess our sins and are faithful. Cultivate an active prayer life. People, fire needs fuel, a spark, and oxygen. God's word is the fuel. Our decision to follow Christ is the spark, and prayer is the oxygen. You need to be praying. Romans 12, 12, Paul tells us, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Oswald Chambers once said, prayer is the vital breath of the Christian. It's what we breathe. Not a thing that makes him alive, but prayer is the evidence that you are alive. So you want to know if you're alive in Christ? How's your prayer life? There are times, I'll be honest with you, I'm on life support right now. (laughs) At that time, I'm like, man, I'm on life support because my prayer life is not good. That's the first clue. I realize it. Now I need to change it. Listen to powerful biblical sermons and podcasts. You know, if you leave fire unattended, what does it do? It goes out, right? 
you have to continually feed the fire. Passion works the same way. We need to stoke it. In 2 Peter, Peter believes that we need to constantly be reminded of what we believe. So you need to be listening to great preaching to stir your mind to greater passions. Passions. Listen to my... I'm not saying I'm a great preacher. I'm just saying, listen to my sermons online. I, well, pastor, I was in church. Yeah, but if you can sit in service and you can pick up everything in the sermon, you're a much better person than I am. You need to listen to it again. And you need to listen to other pastors. But you need to be careful. There are people out there who are not preaching the truth of Scripture. And they are popular. So how do I know? Talk to me. I'll let you know. I've done some research. I've listened to them. And I'll give you other people who have talked about what these pastors are saying. They are very popular. But they're not preaching the whole truth of Scripture. Be careful. There are a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing out there. Open your Bible and read it. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out from God and profitable for teaching. If you can't read it, listen to it. And lastly, share the gospel. There's more to being a Christian than just attending church. It's about sharing the gospel. So the question is, what are we zealous for? Zealous, it says, zealous is wrapped like a cloak. The, the, that, that, the, that the Messiah will wrap it like a cloak around us. It covers us. It protects us. It keeps us going in the right direction. Keeps us in the battle. What are you zealous for? This is a question you need to ask yourself. What am I zealous for? And if it's for the wrong thing, if it's not for God, if it's not for his righteousness, you need to change it. If it's for yourself, you need to change it. We need to act and live as God would have us live. We need to examine ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your zealousness. Your zealousness for Zion. Lord, help us to be zealous for your righteousness. Help us to be zealous in prayer. Help us to be zealous for your word. Help us to be zealous for sharing the gospel. Help us to be zealous for listening to good preaching, for listening for worship, Father. Let, let people know that we are zealous for you, that, we are, that it burns as a passion within us. Help us to not just be mediocre. Mediocre is not good enough. It doesn't mean we're going to be running around like a crazy person. It means that we're going to be loving like Christ is loving. It means that we are going to be doing those things that bring you glory. We're going to be passionate about things that bring you joy. And in the process, Lord, you will give us those things that we need. Because we trust you. We have our faith in you and we're growing by you. Help us to put aside the things of this world. We can't do both. We praise you, Father, for what you're doing, what you're going to do in the world, drawing everything under Christ. Help us, Lord, to be zealous for your mission and your plan. We pray this by your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go in peace.
Thank you for joining Living Faith on our YouTube channel. My prayer is that this message today has encouraged you and strengthened your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to connect with you, so please subscribe to our channel and hit the bell so that you get updated when we add a new message. Also, please leave any comments you might have in the comments section. We would love you to join us live for our service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We hope you have a great day today. God bless.